Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Brooke Flint, who's a buyer's agent and director at Flint Property. We have a chat to Brooke about really the value proposition of a buyer's agent. She has a background in residential sales and really witnessed the sales agents running rings around the untrained buyers. So we talked to her about evening up that matchup. We discuss vendor advocacy, which is some work that she has been getting more and more involved in and what that actually entails, and talk to her about some of the case studies and the wins that she's seen for property investors and homeowners in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. We also unpack her standard property investment philosophy and how she sees the best way for property investors to grow their wealth is in the next 12 to 24 months. Here's Brooke. Brooke Flint, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm really excited about chatting today. Beautiful. Me too. I've been looking forward to it. Now, anyone that hasn't heard of you, Brooke, can you give us an intro in who you are and what you specialize in? Yeah, so I'm a Sydney buyer's agent or advocate for those Melbourne listeners. And um, look, essentially, I buy real estate in that 10-kilometer radius of the CBD and which CBD are we talking about? Sydney, the Sydney yep. CBD. Okay, so you specialise in Sydney? Yes, I do, yep. Now, growing up as a young lass, Brooke, what posters were on the bedroom wall? So, you know, if I was allowed to have a poster on the bedroom wall, um, <laughs> it would be movie posters like Betty Blue, The Year My Voice Broke or My Life as a Dog. I loved art house cinema. Beautiful. Yeah, right. It's been a while since since I've had one myself. Maybe Amelie. Would you call that art house? Yes, definitely. Beautiful. That's a beautiful one. Yeah. Um, what about property? How did you get started with property and what was your first investment? Look, how I got started with property um, was observing my parents. Um, my parents bought their first property when I was about six or seven, the family home. And, you know, I distinctly remember that process and then, they renovated that property twice um, in between going wanting to move out of the area and buy another one and then only to to divorce after that second renovation. So yeah, renos will do that. It, they will. And so I just <laughs> went through, you know, like auction process when they auctioned the property, looking at other property and that renovation. And it really it got me thinking that I wanted to own a property. So my first property was a one-bedroom apartment in Surrey Hills and it had about an hour and a half of light in the afternoon. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> it was entry level. <laughs> right. What was shading it? Is it a brewery or a brothel or a <laughs> local lockup or something? It was another building across the road. So right. it, was a, it was a beautiful apartment. Um, you know, it was just like an art deco one-bedroom and I was so proud to have bought it. Um, but, yeah, it only had a, an hour, about an hour and a half of, of sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, is it something you still own or did you sell that at some point? So I sold that and it did extremely well. Um, you know, I sold it six years later and moved moved up in the property ladder. So that was something that I, I lived in. Beautiful. Now, Brooke, you've got a Bachelor of Visual Arts majoring in film and video. Now, I know that you are a bit of a TV personality, but surely that's not why you studied that degree. Can you give us a rundown and which maybe your trajectory of when you were doing that degree? I'm not sure about me being a t- TV personality, but I'll t- <laughs> I'll take the personality. Um, <laughs> look, I look as a ch- as a kid at school. I spent the uh, the years on the stage and I just I love story and I love human connection so 
uh, I went to do what a lot of Australians do, which is go and live in London. And I did that for a year. And I thought to myself, if I stay longer, I want to actually have achieved something. So I ended up getting into uh, college over there, London College of Printing, and studying film and animation. And that's when I realised that it was film that I really loved because I got to tell those stories on camera. Oh, beautiful. And what what was it that you wanted to be? Was there a certain vocation you had in mind or you wanted to be a, an actor? What, what were you sort of gravitating towards? Look, I had lofty goals of wanting to be a film director. Um, mm-hmm. I loved, as I said, I loved the idea of story and being able to convert that onto uh, film as a, as a medium of creativity. So Beautiful. Yeah. What a, it begs the question now, and we're going back to the getting to know you section but what are what are some of the maybe the movies that you really stand out for you that maybe people haven't have haven't heard of that should check out oh gosh you're asking me this question now um i didn't do my (laughs) research for this um look you know i i love there's so many different films that i like and i guess i'm much more open to films today than i was years ago when i was a film student um Mm -hmm. So, oh my gosh, I um, there's a film called La Jatée, which is a, a French film about a man that um, basically observes his own death and it's about that concept between time and space and when we were at film, we, at film school we had to actually make our own film so we had to be inspired by these directors. But they're, they're films that are basically locked in the um, Australian films archives that are very art house and then stuff that I kind of like now is things you know oh, this is going to keep a really large gap in your <laughs> your recording because I have to think about what I really love like I love um, Lovers of the Arctic Circle which is a Spanish film um, and it really deals with that topic of synchronicity um, so they're all my sort of art house films that I love but I also love um you know, the Tom Hanks movie, and I just can't think of it, set in the jail, you might be able to help me. Ah, um, gosh, now I've got a blank. Yeah. We'll come back to that. You've given us some good homework though. Yeah. Um, jotted down a couple of notes, especially in quarantine. I was trying to avoid talking about the pandemic, but um, <laughs> we, we need a little bit of material. Now, Brooke, just when we were sort of starting to like you, um, you became a real estate agent. Everything, you, you know, you had so much promise. <laughs> so what, what first got you interested in selling real estate instead of being a movie director? Look, I, I worked in film for a number of years and I came to a grinding halt when there was the writer's strike and I realised that this industry wasn't very creative when you were trying to work your way up. So I went to a John McGrath uh, session and he was incredibly inspirational and very much into self-transformation and, and personal development and he said the three words you can create your reality in real estate and it just I loved this um this idea that I could actually work in an industry and be trained and become better at what I did and grow from what I did and create income as well so yeah I loved it. So with the John McGrath sort of I guess selling the dream there is creating your own reality there's that's where you've found your parallel between the world of film and real estate I suppose you were you were creating your own little movie script and you were this sort of the starring role I guess well it was more so that I thought because I, I witnessed I worked on these film sets and I witnessed you know the director of photography um I've worked on Moulin Rouge, for instance, and and he was, you know, working as a, a brickies labourer in in the break, like in the Christmas breaks and things like that. And I just witnessed that people didn't really have a proper proper, 
I guess, career path in that industry. And that's what really yeah. got me thinking. I, I wanted to get into real estate and then on the side do my creativity, you know? Yeah. Yeah, gee, isn't that an insight into the into the arts? You can you can hold a high office, but then you got to, you know, slug a bit of mortar around to pay the bills on the weekends. Yeah. Now we were we were sort of heading really really high with your your aspirational um, movie career. Then we dropped a little bit with real estate, but to to get you back up there, I wanted to, <laughs> to ask you um, about the volunteering stuff that you're doing and and your your position as a director on the board of. Um, Head Start Homes. Can you can you give us a bit of an insight into what that's about and what you do there? So Head Start Homes is a startup charity that I've been a director of since it began, so two years ago. And essentially, we exist to help people that are in social housing buy their own property and move into that property so that it frees up social housing as well. So look, it's um, we act like the bank of mum and dad in the sense of um, coming up with a deposit because that's really the barrier of entry into the housing market. And, mm-hmm. and through the process, the clients um, self-realise because they start saving money, they get financially literate, and then they go through that journey of me assisting them uh, buy the very best property for them. So I'm a director on the board, but I also am offering property coaching services to the client's as well. Beautiful. Well, we're firmly back in positive territory now, Brooke. We're, we're all on team, Brooke. <laughs> um, now, after that sort of dark time in, in real estate sales, you actually moved to advocate for the buyer rather than the vendor. What made you want to, to pivot around being an advocate for the buyer? I just saw that buyers weren't being looked after. And one thing that I learned uh, as a selling agent was to look after your buyers. Uh, and selling agents did that, but I felt that they did it to for themselves, and I wanted to really assist the buyers. So I, one of my old boss, uh, who's a great buyers agent in Sydney, and I had worked together as selling agents, and she kept talking to me about this job that she had, and or a role within her business. And yeah, it finally clicked one day, and she offered me a, a role in her business, and I was like a duck to water. I loved it. Beautiful. Well, I mean, you got all the the skill set being in in sales, I suppose. But suddenly, it's uh, it's it's evening up that relationship, right? Because when you're a an untrained buyer, you're going up against sales agents advocating for the vendor. They're they're better trained. They're better in touch with with the market. They've seen negotiations a million different ways before. You're suddenly sort of uh, attacking that transaction and that negotiation with a bit of extra skill and and evening it up. Is that really the sort of one of the main value propositions for a buyer's agent? Oh, definitely. I, I think that you know when I first, I couldn't believe how easy it was for me to be good at being a buyer's agent. And what it was was utilizing all of that real estate knowledge and being really honest each day with the buyers and that and and being able to be strategic with the selling agents as well like understanding that side of things helps me buy better for buyers so it just really understanding you know negotiation uh how a sales campaign works how pricing works and how to deliver that back to a buyer because of that inside scoop that i had that's the connections that I, i grew from being in the industry for such a long time um that's really that really helps me as well knowing those agents and having worked with those agents as well, and with the with the people that you work with that are looking at say buying an investment property, typically for what reason would they engage you? 
So anybody, most people think that, you know, it's people offshore that are using a buyer's agent, but what I've found is it's time poor people, you know, people that are very good at what they do and they they might even have Saturday sports and things like that. So they just don't have the time to invest into working out how to buy such a, a large asset. And you mentioned before that you focus within 10Ks of Sydney. That gets you a reasonable list of suburbs. Are there any particular suburbs or pockets that you operate in? And, and if so, what, what's unique about those areas? Well, my office is in um, basically Edgecliff, Paddington. And so uh, that's the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And uh, a lot of my business is in those that area. So that's the inner city CBD, so Surrey Hills, Paddington, Darlinghurst, Elizabeth Bay, Potts Point, um, and Beachside as well. And look, I think what what those areas really are are the premium areas of a city that's you know the highest price point in Australia. So um, it's probably the most competitive real estate as well because those areas are quite tightly held for certain asset classes. Yeah. And typically, are the people transacting in those markets owner-occupiers or do investors still purchase properties in the sort of $1 and $2 million plus mark? You know, the thing, I've been doing buying advocacy now for 10 years and I just noticed a real shift after 2015. So I've bought a lot of investment properties pre-2015 and because of the, the nature of the huge price increases in Sydney, a lot of regular mum and dad investors dropped off and I do believe they've gone to Melbourne. Um, right. Whereas the, the, the investors that I'm working for now are usually people that are building intergenerational wealth. Mm. Um, so they might be, uh, you know, they've bought with me or they've bought a property and it's actually gone up, you know, it's such a huge amount. Uh, in equity that they look at buying another property for their children. I do get, I'm starting to see though different investors coming to this market now, which we'll talk about a bit later. Um, and these are investors that I I know that I think the banks call them, you know, aggressive investors. Um, mm-hmm. They're people that are waiting for things such as now a pandemic and they're cashed up, ready to go. And they're not necessarily just reliant on a strong cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. They can suffer the, the 2% yields and wait for the capital growth because they've got 100%. other sources of income, right? That's right, yeah. What do you? Where do you sort of think you add the most value as a buyer's agent? And maybe you're a little bit different from the average buyer's agent and that would, they, everyone might answer that question differently, but is it about sourcing the properties? Is it the negotiation with the sales agents? Is it doing the due diligence? Where, where is it that you think, you know what, like this is, I've earned my fee just in this section of what I do? Yeah, look, I love, love this question because each client is different. Um, and you could say for different clients, the value has been in one of those one of those areas. And I, I don't mean to answer that question with such a wide brush, but it really is. Like there are some people, um, you know, that I do an evaluate negotiate service for where they bring me the property. You know, they, they bring that property to me and it's through the evaluation, working out exactly what it's worth and setting up a really firm buying strategy that yields the results for them. Um, equally, there's been some clients that have got, you know, really a blind spot with what they're looking at and and I've uncovered a property that may be sitting right in front of them that they can't see and I drag them through and talk to them about what they can actually do with that property or it might be a great off-market property that I've found for some clients. 
So I've actually hit the mark on each of those three things with each client and it really comes down to what they need, you know. Yep. I I know that everyone loves to hear the case studies and the off-market transactions are always very sexy, but can you share some some good news, some of the work that you've done? I remember hearing a story about some properties that were side-by-side. Side. I think it was in Balmain in a presentation that you did. That was that was a very interesting one. Can you run us through that case study? Yeah, so this, this was, you know, why I think somebody like myself really earns their fee because... Uh, there were two properties that were being sold side by side and the agents at the time were trying to sell these properties as a um, development site and they really missed the market. They, they didn't get the pricing right. They didn't get the audience right for who wanted to buy it. And so the campaign was what I would call a failed campaign because it didn't sell at auction. So then what they decided to do was split the two properties up and re-market them to more of the family buyer of Balmain. And so I ended up buying one on one side and there was three other buyers on that um, and we went directly to the solicitor to exchange that property. There was other buyers apparently that wanted to, to pay overs for that. So we paid approximately around that sort of 1.85, okay? So it was like a, a four-bedroom, double-storey freestanding house. And then I had some clients that, that were looking in Balmain and they were really focused on having parking and so I saw this property that next door because I knew it so intimately. I knew how these agents were working and what their weak spots were and what their strong spots were, I guess. Um, and I, I, I said to my clients, we really need to look at this, this house for you guys. You know, you want to make some money. This is the property to do it. It was overquoted at $1.3 um, It was sitting on 485-square-metre block, but it didn't have parking. And because we knew the neighbour, we actually started – chatting to the neighbour about whether or not these guys could put parking in. That was never going to be anything set in concrete for the purchase, but it was just a, an added on. So in, anyway, we went. To, I went to auction on this property and nobody else turned up and I ended up uh, buying it for $1.2 million. The domain advertised that property that it should have sold for about $1.4 um, on the Saturday. So already I felt like we were up 200000 and I, I really thought it could have been worth that as well. But what it was was we were sitting, I think it was 2012, the market was quite um, very similar to now but not as, not, not the auction clearance rates weren't not as, as pandemic low, but not, not as pandemic but it was, there was no confidence in the market, right? So, yeah, um, yeah so that, that was the result on the day. And then snapshot four years later and these guys sold that, that house for 2.3 million, um, having done no work to it whatsoever, that was a 96.2% return, and they didn't even put the parking in either. So nice. Yeah, it was a good one. <laughs> that's, that's a good good one for the brochure. That's a great one for the brochure. And it was also just about understanding, I guess, the the way that the agents worked and seeing how they had miscommunicated the property and also the price. They, they, they really got it wrong. So I, I love an overpriced property, I have to say. <laughs> now, you've often sort of been engaged to, to execute some unusual briefs and I wanted to ask you about the car park story. I don't know if that was an upside or that was an actual uh, something that they were going for, but can you, can you share that one with me again? Yeah, so look, I, I, had a, I have a client that um, has a beautiful family home in Mossman that I helped him purchase a few years before and it only had one garage and he was always talking about buying this Aston Martin 
And anyway, there was. I like this guy already. Yeah, <laughs> he did. He did buy it too. And um, I saw this one bedroom unit come up, literally behind him, and it had a garage attached to it. And when I looked at it closer, the garage actually was on a separate title. So I spoke to to my client about purchasing this property. And my my feeling was that if he purchased this property for I think it was around that sort of six hundred and twenty thousand at that at this point as the market was in a growth phase that he could then separate the unit from the garage in the next few years and then hold the garage and pretty much get himself a garage for you know basically free garage yeah a free garage so. We did that. We bought the property. There was about three or four other investors at the time. And again, I went straight to the solicitor's office and we we bought that property quite well from what I um, worked out price-wise. About two and a half, three years later, we we looked at it again. So he had separated. You didn't have to do anything, basically. When you just went to sell, you got a contract for the unit only. We had to make sure the garage wasn't on there because we use the same solicitor. <laughs> and I helped him go through a sales advisory. So that's where I uh, work out what the property's worth, helped him select an agent, and then took the property to market. And he essentially got a garage for, yeah, for probably about $5,000 in the end, I think it worked out. Wow, and we've seen a lot of media reports about the cost of garages in Sydney, so I think he's doing pretty well. But yes. most importantly, the uh, the shiny Aston Martin's got a beautiful little little house. <laughs> yeah, it did have a little house, and funnily enough, you know that now with his family home, he can offer a double garage for a resale as well. So, you you know, in terms of what value that adds, it I know some buyers that won't look at a property without a double garage, so. Yeah. And it was literally literally directly behind their, their relay and access, so it was brilliant. Awesome. Now, you mentioned with that particular client doing some vendor ad- advocacy work, and, and I know that's something that you do a lot at the moment. Can you explain how you work alongside the selling agent? So essentially the, the person wanting to sell the property is is hiring an agent but you're also hired to help them sell the property. It, it does sort of beg the question, what is the selling agent doing if they need your help as well? Yeah, it does. And look, this this service and the way that I run this service now was really born out of um, necessity, as all great services are born out of, hmm. where I had a client in a previous business that I worked in, we had a client that basically how we offered the service was do the pricing, help them select the agent and let them go through that process. And she was selling her property and, and we did that and um, – she ended up selling without speaking to me, which wasn't her instructions, but the agent got in there and spoke to her and he took a signed contract around. She sold it on the Thursday before auction to my, I was absolutely mortified. The next day she had a buyer knock on her door and offer her, say to her, she would have paid fifty dollars to $100,000 more for that property and right. that she had been in touch with the agent. And this went, we, we went sort of further to this um, with, you know, speaking to the agent, there was nothing that she could have done. She actually accepted that offer and it was done and dusted. So what it made me realise was that clients did need further help. Um, they needed not only the pricing and the um, helping select the agent, but they needed their hand being held throughout that sales process because, you know, in Sydney, pricing is is really challenging to really get right when people are selling you know, their family homes. And so that's the first tick, I think, where people can understand from a buyer's agent perspective, what is my property worth? And should I take an offer prior to auction? Should I wait to auction? 
or should I, I let it pass in at auction and give it a shot afterwards? Um, and holding them their hand through that process is really important as well because I've worked on some cases where, you know, we've been brought a, a pretty strong offer and if they were left to their own devices because of how vulnerable they feel uh, and not having that advocate there, they would potentially have sold it. I, I worked on one at the end of last year, which was a multi-million dollar property, and it equated to another $250,000 that we got on auction day from, for waiting, you know. Wow. Yeah. You see, it's, it's easy to jump to the conclusion that the, the selling agent in that example, you know, bashed the client over the head to make them take the offer. But it, it may have been the case and certainly could be the case that they're saying, look, we've got this offer, but I still think we should go to the auction. But someone gets panicky thinking, you know, well, a bird in the hand and aren't prepared to sort of go to the auction because of the fear of, of the unknown compared to something on paper. But that's where you're able to sort of step outside the emotion and say, look, this is an appreciating market. We're seeing properties around the corner having 30 registered bidders you'd be crazy to wrap it up before the auction look every time I make these calls I I don't do it lightly this is a huge responsibility because I have to be in communication with that agent all the way through we're working together as a team what the agent sees and what I see every Saturday are two different things the agent is focused on the sale and I know from being a selling agent myself that we can just have that very, um, you know, laser focus on that particular sale. And I know that agents get quite nervy before an auction as well. There was a number of buyers agents on that property and there was a number of buyers that were saying, we're not going to turn up at auction. So because I sit on the other side of that fence, I say that so many times, (laughs) quite a a dollar for every time I say I don't turn up at auction or I've heard that as well. Um, I also get to see across the board a lot more properties than a selling agent would see and I get to be involved in other negotiations. So I can see something different to what they can see and then I rely on them for their laser focus of what's going on in that sales campaign and together uh, we make that decision. But with that particular incident, that agent genuinely felt that that was a, a strong offer and, you know, at the time I guess we all did and we did take a risk to take that to auction. Um, however, we knew we could have got that at the least and those buyers that offered that still turned up at auction and actually bid over that as well. So I think it was just um, it's using both of our intelligence to give the vendor a more accurate reading of what's going on. When you're a selling agent, and I've been there myself, you can just sometimes get the fear of God in, in you because so many buyers start dropping off before the auction and you know um it's 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 a hard call to make it really is yeah and you get paid when you sell right and if that's That's 50 grand less than what it maybe could be got it's not making a huge difference when you factor in the percentage it's you you know there's a big motivation to getting it sold and because just one other thing mike on that and why i i do take a lot of um time to come up with that i understand pricing and i think that's really the key to making that work whereas the selling agents they don't have to understand pricing like I do you know my reputation's on the line every time I buy something whereas yes. selling agents they their job is to try to steer that vendor away from price let's steer that away from price let's work out where to quote it you know at, a, at the lowest possible price really to get as many buyers through that front door and the know? market let the market decide yeah. whereas you yeah. are really sort of representing the market yes 
Getting to property investing, uh, I know that you're an investor yourself, of course. You work with property investors every day. Uh, what are some of the key fundamentals that you look for as an investor and are there any specific methodologies that you use when you're looking at asset selection? You know, like I think about my first um, investment that I made and it didn't tick a lot of the boxes that I feel need to be ticked, but what it, what it represented, and I love this way of investing for for people that are trying to start out is I love an entry-level investment. So a, a, a unit that's that's entry-level into a great suburb and it can be swept up in the um, in the growth of that suburb. And that's what, what I did with Surrey Hills property. So some of my methodologies, though, is about looking for the things that you can't change in a property, you know. Um, so location and sunlight are the two things that you can't change and being able to really have a, a mindset of looking at the things that you can change. So I bought this, um, you know, one bedroom in Paddington for a client who was looking for a two-bedroom and it was 82 square metres and we were able to make that into a, a two-bedroom apartment by the time we finished with it and it was a great location. It was in Paddington. So, yeah, so I love this methodology of finding the things that you can't change in a property and really focusing on them and then um, looking at the things that you can change. Yeah, so if you've got, I guess, the, the foundation of it's it's an in-demand property, it's got a good aspect, it's close to the schools, then the value-add pieces of the puzzle are those, you know, those extra, I guess it's the icing on the cake to add another add another bedroom or, you know, put in a car park or do a little cosmetic reno or something like that. Absolutely. You know, and I think that there's many investors that actually don't have that vision. So I've worked with a, a designer who's actually an interior architect and going through properties with her so, you know, so many times with my clients has really taught me how to look at the, um, the opportunities within a, within a, um, a property. Beautiful. Now, what about Sydney? And I think I, I maybe even was thinking about asking you this question pre-pandemic and, and maybe yeah. there's two answers to the question. What, what does the future hold for, for Sydney? And, and maybe if you can take us back to, let's say, the end of January, beginning, uh, maybe end of February, beginning of March, before we had the COVID-19 scare, what were the fundamentals looking like and how does that contrast to, to, to today and what do you think is going to happen? A few questions there. Let's, let yeah, me, I know. Let me, three at least. For the purpose of answering you, I'll just go dust off my crystal ball as well. I'm sure Good. it will be needed. Um, look, so, I mean, gosh, we met, I think, um, in February when, when we were both speaking at that um, property event and the future was bright in February. Um, however, if you knew anybody that was, um, you know, in the share market, they were already seeing some of these issues outside of Australia that were, were happening um, in the property markets. So we went from 83% auction clearance rates on the 29th of February to, you know, today or this weekend, 36%. We went from $550 million worth of stock being sold on that last weekend of February to this Saturday, $122 million worth of stock. So, you know, that's just the data points, right? But we're actually also in the middle of two um, public holidays. So we've had the Easter break and then we've got Anzac Day and we're in the school holidays and then we've got little old COVID-19 sitting there as well. So the things that really changed, I I was actually bidding on – three properties on March 14th 
So we had the pandemic that was announced on March the 13th and then I was on three properties on the 14th and there was no impact to prices on March 14th in Sydney. Mm. We actually walked away from all of those three properties. Interesting. So they were too hot. Too hot, way too hot. And literally the next weekend was when we started to see the impact. Um, and when when we were only, when auctions weren't able to happen and open homes, that's when we started to see a real shift as well because many vendors that were going to sell don't didn't want to sell their properties and obviously it's just a bit more challenging trying to create competition when you don't have a, an auction. Although in saying that, there has been a number of online auctions that have I've heard have done quite well um, when the prices, when they've, they've pitched it at the right level, you know. What sort of person is, is buying property right now given that we sort of even even some of the – more educated property commentators and and data aggregators like CoreLogic are saying the future is very unknown as to what's going to happen with with property prices. There are obviously people that are purchasing owner ox investors that are thinking, you know, I'm not too worried about the future. I'm getting in. Who, who are those people? I, again, I just we really suffer from this herd mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, we'll have the herd immunization as well on the COVID stuff. <laughs> But it's interesting, isn't it, how, you know, back in February, we've got the auction clearance rates over 80%. The price hikes were huge compared to even December of of the end of last year and everybody wanted to buy. Now what's happened is the clients that I've got on my books are either astute investors, those that don't have to rely on cash flow necessarily to to buy a great property, owner-occupiers that that I had on my book since, you know, February that have bought much better than they would have bought in February. Um, and, yeah, they're, they're my two types of clients basically. And there, I do have a number of clients on my books at the moment and and a number of inquiry as well from places like Hong Kong because the Aussie dollar is um, so low. So, it's, yes. you know, if they can get their finance and they know that their job is going to last through this, um, it's a great time to buy. And comparatively with when you consider the global containment of coronavirus, Australia's going to exit this with a pretty good track record, right? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, Louis Christopher had his um, uh, word out this morning, which I was reading about, and there's two types of things that could happen based on what I was reading this morning, a V-shaped recovery um, or or the worst-case scenario. And the V-shaped recovery would be if after you know, a number of weeks in lockdown still, we have contained that virus and we start incrementally getting back going to work. We may start seeing some areas of improvement. Um, The worst case scenario would be if there was a a reinfection um, and then there's more of the unknown stuff. So as CoreLogic said, we just don't know what's going to happen. You know? Yes, an infection sort of spike would be a bit of a disaster if you're getting those localised outbreaks. So let's hope for everyone's sake that doesn't happen because I'm guessing there's a lot more damage to be done than just the real estate market. There's obviously the health concerns but economic damage as well. That's right. And the thing is uh, one thing that I've noticed from the data that the government's putting out is the, these you know, breakouts are largely because of 
the cruise ships in New South Wales. Mm. Um, and I, I have to say I'm really proud not only to be Australian right now but also um, to feel safe and the way real estate agents are managing themselves throughout this uncertainty, um, you know, the way that we're, they're showing properties, a lot of hand washing going on, <laughs> a lot of yep. sanitization, and a lot of we're going back to the old in a sense, a lot of conversations about properties and, and things like that. So whatever's happening, I, I see that real estate agents are actually dealing with it just each day, like they're, they're doing what has to be done and there's still deals that are happening and there's still buyers out there that that do want to buy. It's it's more so do the vendors want to sell. See, now we're moving into more of a, a buyer's market and in a vendor's market, you're fighting other buyers to buy. In a, yep. in a you know in a buyer's market you're fighting the vendor really yes for their own and who, property <laughs> and who's selling right now compared to the buyers I, I'm I'm guessing that the only people that are selling now are either upgraders because they might get something better for their money or or they're selling because of duress and I guess it doesn't feel like duress would be coming into the marketplace as yet with the mortgage freezes and those sorts of things. Are you seeing forced sales and, and who, are the, who are the people selling? You know, when the pandemic was announced, I did see a couple of sales that I thought were quite low and I think that people just panicked. So like there was panic buying for the toilet rolls. There was panic yeah. selling for the houses and I saw some prices that I thought, wow, that was a good buy for that person. And as we've moved along, yes, I've seen some properties that have gone, I think, for better prices than in February, um, but there's a number of people that just, they're not selling now, Mike, and I'm actually finding it hard to find a really good property on the market. So I yeah. love, you know, more owner-occupied property, um, property that is very appealing and that's what I'm challenged with finding. So there's a lot of sifting that I have to go through because there is a whole off-market situation that's going on that people aren't even seeing that's even being registered um, in terms of sales and everything else. There's, there's, there's quite a lot of activity going on. Do you think that there's, there's obviously less for sale, listing volumes are already going down, there's people that are wanting to buy. Do you think that there will be a sort of supply and demand balance that will keep price is pretty stable or do you think that there's going to be a lot more demand than there is supply? Look, you know, that's a question that I think you can't really look at Sydney as a whole. Segmentation is really important and yeah. there, I, I speak to a number of agents in the blue chip areas and, and the blue chip properties in those blue chip areas and those, those sellers are not going to be selling in this market if they don't have to. Yeah. Um, and, and that's always the, the challenge. A lot of people want to buy in a down market and, yes, there are opportunities and I find them and I look for them and all the rest of it. But sometimes if you're, a, if you're an upgrader and you're trying to find that forever family home, it's not always the market to find it in mm. because those downsizers, for instance, aren't selling. And we saw that between 2017 and 2019. So I forgot what the question was now but I hope I answered it. <laughs> oh, I was just, I'm just interested in the idea that, let's say there's a lot less for sale because people don't want to sell, is there going to be a, a reasonable balance of supply and demand? Because, of course, when, when property prices are going crazy, there's, there's a demand that the supply is not meeting. 
But yeah, of course, there's a lot less demand for properties. There's going to be a lot less people buying because they're worried, but there'll be a lot less people selling as well. So I'm just wondering if that'll hold up property price values because the the, the supply and the demand, I guess, levers are both fighting each other on a relatively even footing. And that that's why I actually started that answering that question in that way because it really comes down to the type of property, Mike. Yeah. For the, for the good good property, um, I, I would imagine that it'll it'll hold its price, um, and and, that, and I've seen that happen. But there is a lot of investor stock on the market at the moment, and I think there's a lot of bargains to be had. Not properties that I would necessarily buy, and I don't think properties that will be overperformers. But there is a lot of investor property out there that I don't think there's the demand for it yet. Where do you see? some of the investment opportunities as being in the next 12 to 24 months? Certainly we can stick with Sydney or if there's any other areas that you think are worth mentioning. But, yeah, over that next 12 to 24-month period, where are these bargains? So one thing I just want to say is I'm not about buying the bargain for the sake of it. I'm about Mm. buying a great property with a principled approach to property buying for a fantastic price at the time, something that's going to be an overperformer. And I don't want to to advocate for people buying property bargains at all, but there, there is a lot of what I see investor property on the market right now would I buy them? No. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm I'm not one to hotspot. I am very much about picking the eye teeth out of the market. And sometimes I'm going to see those opportunities in an area like Mossman because something's been overpriced or there's, you know, a number of two-bedroom units on the market at, at any given time. And sometimes I'm going to see, see them in the inner west or inner city area. So again, this is why using somebody that's a buyer's agent that does what I do, which is very localised, is very much about uh, seeing the opportunities within that marketplace. So if, if anything's overpriced, I love that opportunity. And again, if it's got the principles of a good property as well. So you might see a particular bargain, you think, ah, that sold for about 20% more, you know, six months ago. That mm. is actually really under market but if you see something about that property that doesn't make you think that that's a seven percent year on year capital growth thing it's probably just something that maybe you could get on the cheap but it's got very poor long-term growth prospects is that is that sort of what you're getting at that the bargains might be attractive up front but really if you're taking a long view with property investing chasing those little one-off bargains is not the best approach Yes, a hundred percent. I mean, I looked at something on on Saturday that looked, you know, really good on paper. It had Opera House and Harbour Bridge views. Um, the bedrooms seemed to be quite well proportioned. Um, however, when I went to visit the property, there were things about that property that just didn't uh, gel with me, and I wouldn't have bought it um, unless it was like heavily discounted. Um, I wouldn't have bought a property like that because. You know, there was a bowling club next door, which potentially could have been redeveloped down the track. Um, it was quite shadowy and dark on the main balcony, things like that, you know. So yeah. th- that's the sort of thing that I'm seeing as bargains. Like they're properties that in these down markets, they struggle to sell. And I think that if you're looking at long-term property investing, you want to know that if you need out from that property, um, you're able to sell that property at any given time and not take a, a huge hit on it which is what you can take with a bargain. So, 
yeah, the bargains are very, it's a bit, a bit like buying shares, you know. Are you looking at um, the entirety of that company and, you know, how much debt they have and things like that as opposed to just buying something because it's cheap? I like it. That's a good analogy. Of the investors that you see killing it, is there something that they have in common, uh, an approach, a strategy? Is there, is there some insight that you could fling our way? I think, you know, this is for younger people listening is to get investing as soon as you can, you know, because it, with, the, with the Sydney property market, one thing that surprises me and it surprised me for the 19 years I've been doing it is how much it always goes up. You know, so so, in, and in terms of the longevity in the market, it's really about the selection of property. Um, I know with myself as well, diversifying those properties as well. So for for my own portfolio, you know, I I I took a punt and bought you know a warehouse space that we could make into it was it was commercial and it was something that we made into residential. So once you build up, a, a, you know, a couple of properties in your portfolio that are I think just tick over nicely. That's when maybe on that third property you can start looking at things a little bit more creatively. Creatively, yeah. yeah it might be something that's a little bit uh, riskier, or something that yeah. you need some cash flow elsewhere to to be able to to get you along. But the upside's there, or something with stronger cash flow as well. You know, so buying. You know, so so one thing about the Sydney property market is that you will be able to get. If bought well, I just love the fact that that first property you buy can really afford you some really strong capital gains, which can get you into your second property. Yeah, yeah, awesome. If you're buying right, now that's right. Brooke, yeah. If people want to buy right, um, how do they get in touch with you? So it's just Brooke Flint, uh, Facebook, Insta, Brooke, Brooke Flint Property on Instagram, uh, Brooke Flint on Facebook, Flint Property on Facebook, and LinkedIn as well. Brooke Flint. Beautiful. Check out the puppies too. They uh, they're pretty famous characters that I'm sure will be on, making an appearance on the socials. Um, <laughs> now, Brooke, yeah, yeah, we were we were lucky enough to have them in the office, and uh, staff are still talking about that. I actually got hate mail from a woman on maternity leave who was annoyed that she couldn't <laughs> be there. Um, Brooke, if there's one piece of advice that you can provide to property investors, what would that be? That owner-occupiers need to think more like investors and investors need to think more like owner-occupiers. Beautiful. Do you want to give us do you want to give us your yeah? So, you know, the mistake that I used to see as a, a selling agent was if somebody, you know, bought a property, these are owner-occupiers, they'd buy a property from me and then they'd renovate it, ask me for my advice on the resales, and then just renovate it to their own tastes, right. not think about reselling it. And so I had a client that did that. And then he ended up getting divorced. And every bit of advice that I gave him, he just didn't take. So instead of putting three bedrooms on the top level, he only put two with two massive big bathrooms, things like that, that was really for his taste. So when he resold it, it just didn't um, hit the mark for a lot of people. And then for the investor side of things is that, again, like find that investment property that really does appeal to owner-occupiers because you'll get a, a much better... Um, tenant and on the resale you'll be able to sell that to an potentially an owner occupier if the market's right beautiful i think that's very sagely advice brooke you've been very generous and i appreciate you coming on the show thanks very much thanks for having me mike and have a great hopefully stay safe as well and indoors yeah exactly i'm keeping the hands washed and uh we'll go for a we'll go for a shiraz on the other side sounds good to me (laughs) cheers brooke Bye. bye